0: The young woman running down the dirt road was completely naked and moving as fast as possible. Stones in the road must have hurt her bare feet, but she believed she was running for her life. No matter what it took, Cynthia V. was bent on escape. It was late afternoon on March 22, 1999, but not excessively cold as she fled through the New Mexico desert near the Sierra Caballo Mountains. A woman driving by saw Cynthia screaming locked her car door, and sped away. Cynthia did not realize how she looked, with blood streaming from a head wound, a metal collar padlocked around her neck, and a chain dangling behind. A man in a second car swerved to avoid her and also drove away. Her plight felt hopeless. While she came upon small homes and trailers along the road, they seemed locked up, and she thought she'd dare not take the time to stop and knock, just in case they were behind her. Then she spotted a well-kept mobile home, writes John Glad in Cries in the Desert, and to her great relief, the door was open. She bounded over, rushed inside, slammed the door shut, and begged the surprised woman watching television to help her. The homeowner hurried to help when she saw how seriously Cynthia was hurt. Blood caked her hair, and there were blood droplets on her face and terrible bruises all over her body. As Cynthia locked the door, The homeowner called 911 and then retrieved a robe for the naked girl. Cynthia, only 22, was stunned to learn that she was about 150 miles south of where she lived in Albuquerque. She was in Elephant Butte, a resort town of approximately 2,000 residents that sat above an 18-mile-long, 36,000-acre reservoir. Two police officers responded to the call, whereupon Cynthia cried hysterically, I'm alive! I'm alive! She tried to calm herself, although it was difficult, and told them she'd been kidnapped by a man who, with a woman, had held her prisoner in a trailer nearby. For three days, they'd tortured her with a bizarre collection of sexual and medical instruments. She'd only just managed to get away. The male abductor had left the trailer not long ago, charging the woman with looking after Cynthia. But when she'd gone to another room, Cynthia had grabbed the set of keys that hung just within reach and unlocked the chain that fastened her to a pole then she spotted a phone and attempted to dial 911 but the woman returned and threw a lamp at her hitting her in the head cynthia fell down while the woman hung up the phone to cut off the call but she quickly recovered a box of items that spilled over contained an ice pick the couple had used on her so she grabbed it to defend herself the woman backed off giving cynthia the brief opportunity to rush for the door she fled without her clothing Certain if she stayed a moment longer, she'd never merge. Cynthia told the officers the location of the trailer, but in fact, another team was already on it. A 911 call had just come in from that location, 513 Pass Road, but had been interrupted. The dispatcher believed that a struggle had taken place, so police had gone to check it out. Cynthia was taken to a hospital, and she reported that her abductors had used her as a sex slave and probably had intended to kill her. She had bruises and burn marks from electrical torture on her body to prove it, which hospital personnel documented with photographs. The details she spilled out were almost too gruesome to believe, but there was one sure way to verify her account – conduct a search. The local police had no idea just then how big this investigation would become, how disturbing, or how frustrating. Cynthia was aware that some of the details she related might seem hard to credit, yet she was able to show them the welts on her back, punctures on her breasts, cuts, bruises, and a recent bump on her head. She'd met her abductor, she admitted, while working as a prostitute in Albuquerque. Vernon Shabirth offers the details in Sex-Related Homicide and Death Investigation. The man, David Parker Ray, had offered her $20 for oral sex in his Toyota RV. Cynthia climbed into the cab where she encountered Cindy Lee Hendy, Ray's live-in girlfriend. Cynthia sensed a trap, but then Ray flashed a badge and told her she was under arrest for solicitation. As they bound and gagged her, she realized they were not police officers, but intended to kidnap her. They placed duct tape over her mouth and locked a steel collar around her neck and drove for several hours with her in the back. There was nothing she could do to resist. When they stopped, they took her into a double-wide trailer and chained her to a post next to a bed. Apparently, it was where they lived. Soon, she said, they had played a twenty-minute tape for her that informed her of what was in store. She was now a sex slave, and she could expect a great deal of abuse. Among other things, she would have sex with animals, the taped voice told her, be forcibly penetrated with dildos, have her nipples stretched to the fullest extent they would go, and give oral sex to Ray whenever he demanded it. She was also told other women before her had died. They applied a series of electrical and medical instruments to different areas of her body, ignoring her muffled moans of pain and the pleas in her eyes to be released, and she was certain they meant to use her as long as possible and then kill her. They suspended her from the ceiling, whipped her, and threatened her with a gun. Ray had nonconsensual sex with her repeatedly as well and did other things to humiliate her. He had told her that he had a secure room in which she had more extreme implements and that soon she would be taken there. She looked for some possible way to escape before she was ever subjected to this. To her mind, that secure room would be her tomb. The officers responding to the interrupted 911 call apprehended David Parker Ray, 59, and his girlfriend Cindy Lee Hendy, 39, in their Toyota RV as they were leaving the trailer. Both were arrested and taken to the police department, where they gave matching statements. They had been trying to help Cynthia kick a terrible heroin habit. Although the case thus far was now largely a matter of he said, she said, the officers weren't willing to turn these two potential offenders loose until they sorted out the facts. A background check indicated that Ray was a mechanic with the State Parks Department, which gave him access to a wide swath of state land. In itself, that was not troubling unless he had, in fact, killed people. The state police quickly secured a warrant to look for the items the victim had told them about, as well as evidence of her being there. If they could find the tapes, whips, and other implements, this would be clearly not a case of a pair of friends helping another kick a drug habit. Yet what Cynthia had described hardly prepared them for what they found. Inside the trailer, investigators discovered a gun and a broken lamp matching Cynthia's description of the one used to strike her and the clear evidence of a recent struggle. They also came across the fake police badge Ray had used and his instructions to Hendy for watching the victim while he was away. The clothing that Cynthia had been wearing when Ray and Hendy had picked her up was there as well, as was an assortment of medical devices, just as Cynthia had described, along with items used to administer an electrical shock. In addition, the police found the pole to which she had been chained and the ice pick she'd used to confront her abductor. They also discovered the audio tape used to terrorize Cynthia, and its contents, recorded in 1993, were just as grim and terrifying as she had described. Next to the double-wide trailer was a smaller one, of a type generally used for moving cargo. This was apparently the secure room where Cynthia feared she would die. Jaberth provides photos of the contents of what Ray called his toy box. The space was 15 by 25 feet, entirely devoted to sexual torture. Ray had drawn pictures of what he planned to do to the victims, and to accomplish his visions, he'd gathered a number of surgical instruments to inflict different types of torment. He also used medical manuals specifically devoted to female anatomy. He also had a homemade electrical device that was clearly intended for inflicting pain and a number of syringes and means of keeping a person under restraint. Then there were the obvious sexual implements, such as large dildos, belts, and whips. There was also a home video of the couple applying these implements to a woman who seemed terrified. It was uncomfortable to watch her scream as Ray methodically threatened and hurt her. Ray placed a TV monitor in the right-hand corner of the trailer, Jabirth writes, so his victims, who were secured to the chair as he tortured them, could see what he was doing to them by looking at the monitor. He had a video camera focused on the gynecology chair to view his operations. Ray had the whole place rigged with a series of chains and pulleys. He also had drawings of things he wanted to do, as well as photographs of the torture he'd inflicted on other women. In addition, he had a series of dolls strung up in various states of bondage and torture. Among his texts, says Jabirth, was a copy of American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis, a novel that details the violent assaults a man inflicts on his victims whenever he needs to blow off some steam from his high stress life. Like its lead character, Ray viewed himself as a man in command and thought of his victims as expendable pawns in his game. He referred to them as packages. Among the more interesting items, Supposedly based on his years of experience, was a page of directions that Ray had apparently written for how to handle a sex slave. Bondage was a must, of course, and the neck collar was considered permanent. He included methods of psychological torture, including a blindfold and a slow, deliberate approach. Verbal abuse was part of every move, including putting the slave in the right positions as he told her what he was going to do, and it was important to prevent her from thinking too much. Keep her off balance, the list read, as well as emphasizing the importance of keeping both her mind and body in a state of stress. The point was to make her docile and willing to do what she was told. He had a list of 16 techniques for brainwashing someone, which included isolation, fear tactics, abuse, and occasional small favors, the best way to make a slave malleable. She never knew what to expect. Ray's Toyota RV, too, yielded evidence as it was soon clear that the restraints that Cynthia recalled were there permanently attached. The police also found duct tape and items used to make the RV appear to be an official police vehicle. Ray and Hendy were both detained and charged with 12 counts, including kidnapping, aggravated battery, and conspiracy. Their bail was set at $1 million each. But even with this evidence, it would not be easy to nail them. Yet the media got wind of the incident and reporters were soon arriving detailing everything they could learn about the sexual torture. Ray described himself on an audio tape found among his effects as a dungeon master, with an affiliation with the Church of Satan. His sex slaves were not just for his own use, he said, but for all members of his congregation. In other words, the woman forced to listen to this was made to believe she would be repeatedly abused by many others who indulged in some of the most sadistic amusements a human could devise. For every threat Ray made on the tapes, he had an instrument to carry it out, the same approach used by Cameron Hooker, who had kept a sex slave for years in Oregon. From the victim's account, detectives learned that she had been tied up in such a way to keep her legs open as wide as possible and then subjected to a series of humiliations, as well as shocks from cattle prods and stun guns. She had been forced to submit to the insertion of oversized dildos and placed at times inside a coffin-like box. All the while, Hendy had watched. She had made no move to help. Instead, she appeared to be enjoying the show. Ray had also photographed some of the things he had done for his records and probably for later delectation. The search team had a huge task ahead, collecting each item and labeling it. The evidence had to be handled carefully in such a way that none would be thrown out of court. They believed that Ray was a serial offender, possibly a serial killer and they wanted to be sure to put him away. New Mexico Public Safety Director Darren White told reporters, this is very disturbing stuff. What he'd seen inside the toy box had literally made my stomach turn. Although authorities were reluctant to give out details, White assured worried residents that the nightmare was behind bars. Lawyers appointed to both defendants stated that they would enter not guilty pleas at the arraignments. Hungry for further details, Reporters fanned out around the area, learning from those who knew Ray that he seemed like a regular guy. No one reported having any trouble with him. He had no criminal record, and there had never been any suspicions about what he might have been doing on his property, which he leased from the Park Service. But the darker hints coming from the police indicated that he was a lot worse than he seemed. Photos and videos found among the items in the toy box showed a victim, bound and subjected to torture. This corroborated Cynthia's story about similar things done to her, but did not yet prove it had been against her will. That she'd worked as a prostitute would diminish her credibility, the prosecutors knew. They hoped they could find this other woman and get her story, if she was still alive. Soon, the case against Ray gained additional strength. When the incident was reported in newspapers, Angelica M. from nearby Truth or Consequences, T.R.C., Came forward to say that she'd suffered a similar ordeal at the hands of the couple just one month before. She was not the woman in the video, so she was yet a third possible victim. She was an acquaintance of the defendants. She said, and she'd entered their home on February seventeenth looking for cake mix. Ray had left and come back with a knife, informing her that she was being kidnapped. She had looked over at Hendy and had seen her holding a gun. She knew then that they were serious. They grabbed her, bound her, and stripped her. Harnessing her onto a table, they then placed a metal collar on her, attached electrodes to her breasts, and jolted her with severe electric shocks and abused her with various sexual implements. Then Ray forced her to give him oral sex. This ordeal went on for three days, she claimed, at which point she was taken from the main trailer to a smaller one and strapped to a chair. They ran electrical currents through her body, shocking her repeatedly in her most sensitive areas. She begged the couple to release her. Finally, on the fourth day of her ordeal, she managed to persuade them to let her go. They had taken her miles away and dumped her out on a local highway, out in the desert, where a police officer picked her up. She'd reported what had happened to her, but the report was apparently filed without follow-up. Now that Rain Hendy had been charged with criminal behavior in a similar incident, she had decided to pursue her case. They received more charges, now totaling 25. When reporters pressed, officials were unable to provide details about why Hendy and Ray had not been investigated or arrested in February. But investigators from many jurisdictions were taking it seriously now. After searching the double-wide trailer, the police turned their attention to the half-acre lot on which the trailer stood. They found bone fragments, but they proved to be from animals, not humans. By April 1st, The FBI had 100 agents on the job, fanning out into Arizona and Texas, searching for potential victims and witnesses. Leeds took agents to Phoenix, Tucson, El Paso, and even into Juarez, Mexico. The tourist town of Truth or Consequences, about seven miles from Ray's trailer, became the headquarters for law enforcement and media alike. There's much more to this case than is publicly known, Special Agent Doug Belden said to the Washington Post or otherwise they wouldn't have had this kind of manpower invested in it. The FBI had given the case the highest priority, even sending profilers from the behavioral analysis unit. The assumption was that Ray had a lengthy history of abuse and was practiced at it, and that the case could very well be worse than anyone yet knew. In addition, he had an accomplice with her own strange past. It turned out that Cindy Hendy was from Seattle, where her three children lived. She'd moved to New Mexico to avoid arrest for forgery, theft, and possession of drugs. Reporters dug up a court report from the previous year in which Hendy had charged a former boyfriend with abuse, but then had told the court to disregard her complaint. I'm so sorry that I lied, she had stated. I've been in counseling for manic depression. It also came to light that Hendy had told a friend, under the influence of alcohol, that she'd participated in Ray's attacks because it gave her an adrenaline rush she confided to this person that there were four to six people who had been killed, dismembered, and tossed into Elephant Boot Lake. He didn't quite believe her, but he later told the police and also gave statements to several reporters. Hendy, it turned out, was willing to deal. In exchange for a considerably reduced sentence, she provided details of Ray's alleged murders, which totaled 14, not 40 as some accounts have it. According to what she said, He told her he had once killed a business partner from Phoenix, Billy Powers, but when he dumped his body into the lake, it had come back up, a murder that was unsolved at the time of his arrest. Thus, he had learned to open the stomachs of people he killed so they would submerge easily in a lake and stay down. Hendy claimed that Ray had disposed of many bodies in the lake and the ravines around south-central New Mexico. He'd been questioned by the FBI in some of the cases but had always been clever enough to fool them, according to Hendy. Authorities followed leads in ten different states, using ground-penetrating radar and cadaver-sniffing dogs, but found no bodies. Handy also revealed that Ray's daughter, Glenda Jessie Ray, had participated with Ray and a man from T.R.C. named Dennis Roy Yancey in the murder of a young woman. The victim's name was Marie B. Parker, and when she went missing, she was 22. She was also the mother of two young children. Investigators soon located Yancey, 27, and brought him in for questioning. Informally, Yancey offered information about the sadomasochistic acts he had witnessed, and in which he had sometimes participated at Ray's trailer. He implicated Ray's daughter in this activity and described pictures he'd seen of Ray's former wife and bondage positions. He'd also watched Ray torture a girl inside the toy box, but insisted that she had consented. Nevertheless, Jesse Ray had allegedly told him that her father had kidnapped women for S&M sex. In a second interview, Yancey changed his tune. He stated that he did know of Marie Parker, who had been killed. In fact, she was his former girlfriend. On July 5, 1997, he'd gone with Ray and Jesse to a saloon for what he thought was a drug deal. Father and daughter went in and returned with Marie. They placed her in handcuffs and warned her that if she talked, they'd kill her. Yancey was told to stay with her in the rear of the vehicle. They then took Marie to the toy box, and Yancey considered calling the police but thought better of it. He was afraid of Ray. He knew that the girl was held for three days, being repeatedly tortured, and then Ray and Jesse came to Yancey and told him they were done with her. They gave Yancey a rope and instructed him to strangle her, which he admitted he did. They then went together to dump the body in a remote area after which Ray threatened Yancey with the same fate if he ever told. When he attempted to show law enforcement where the body was, he was unable to locate the exact place. It was also possible that Ray had moved the body, worried that Yancey might crack. On April 10, 1999, Yancey was booked on suspicion of murder. He was also charged with kidnapping, evidence tampering, and conspiracy. His case ended with two sentences of 15 years each for one count of second-degree murder, and one count of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. The sentences were to run consecutively. Since Hendy had given details to help on these cases, the charges against her were reduced from 25 to 5 counts of conspiracy and being an accessory. She pleaded no contest in exchange for a sentence of 36 years. After reading the continuing coverage, the mother-in-law of a woman, married only a few days to her son, came forward to tell the police about how the girl had gone missing for three days. She had come back, disheveled and unable to explain herself. They had assumed she was on drugs, so they asked her to leave, which she did. She ended up in Colorado. The police located her, and she was identified as the woman in the videotape who was being tortured and assaulted, seemingly against her will. Her tattoos matched those of the woman. However, she only had fragmented memories of what had happened. She did remember Jesse Ray and being taken to a trailer. Ray had threatened her with a knife, she said while Jessie restrained her. She was stripped and tied onto a bench in a small room, and she accurately recalled items from the toy box. She also remembered being subjected to several types of non-consensual sex. She was then taken out and dropped off near her in-law's home, disoriented. She could barely recall what had happened. On April 26, Glenda Jean Jessie Ray was arrested and charged with kidnapping women for sexual torture. More charges were added to Ray's, now totaling 37 counts. At Jessie Ray's arraignment, her lawyer, Billy Blackburn, entered a not guilty plea. He stated that she vehemently, adamantly denies any such involvement with her father and predicted that many more people would be arrested before the case was over. One newspaper reported that Jessie had told the police 13 years earlier that her father had abducted and sold women in Mexico, but no victims were identified, and apparently, there was no record of this report. Regardless of how many accomplices Ray did or did not have, he was quickly diagnosed by FBI profilers as a criminal sexual sadist. Karl Berg wrote a book called The Sadist about serial killer Peter Curtin, and it was one of the first psychiatric works devoted to the subject of a person who tortures others for their own pleasure. Curtin would chew on his victims during sex, killing them. The word derives from the 19th century work of Richard von Kraft Ebbing, In his book Psychopathia Sexualis, in which he set out to collect various sexual crimes into medical categories, he based the concept of deriving pleasure from humiliating or inflicting pain on other sentient beings on the writings of the 18th century Marquis de Sade, whose philosophical pornography detailed violent sexual episodes, including murder. Kraft Ebing thought that sadism in males was a distortion of the sexual instinct, and he was so certain it was exclusive to males that he never studied female sadists. In Hickley's Sex Crimes and Paraphilia, Lisa Schaefer and Julie Penn spell out the nature of the paraphilia known as sadism. They indicate that it may or may not involve consent, and for some offenders, it's definitely more exciting to inflict pain on non-consensual victims. Most sadists begin as masochists, these authors say, who are aroused by the receipt of pain or humiliation. Then they move into a dominating role and find they prefer it. Some even develop such a hunger for sadistic arousal that they become murderers. Among the most notable examples, besides Ray, are Robert Berdella, who tortured young men before killing them, and the Canadian team of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, who killed three young women. They kept two as temporary sex slaves. The types of activities sadists enjoy include whipping, handcuffing people, hanging them, choking victims into unconsciousness and then reviving them, stomping on them, using substances to induce altered states of consciousness, electrocuting, piercing, cutting, and keeping them imprisoned. They might also enjoy inflicting humiliations such as covering victims in excrement. Some sadists even hire themselves out to masochists to inflict a controlled, choreographed scenario. While there are differing opinions on this condition, and its causes remain obscure, it appears to form during certain associations in adolescence. Even so, more than one-third of people with this condition report discovering their condition well into adulthood. They enjoy the feeling of power and authority that arises from having their way with a vulnerable human being. There is no known effective therapy for those who compulsively harm others in a nonconsensual, illegal manner. Ray had yet to be convicted, but one FBI agent who had seen the contents of Ray's toy box stated that the time, money, and effort spent on building up his extensive and varied inventory supported the fact that he was among the most extreme of sexual sadists. It was time to get him into court. State District Judge Neil Mertz made the decision to have Ray tried separately for each of the three victims. One trial was to begin on March 28, 2000, in Tierra Amarilla for the kidnapping and non-consensual sex of Cynthia V. Judge Mertz had made it difficult to use all the evidence, according to Gladden Fielder and he suppressed Ray's early interviews with the FBI and New Mexico State Police. He also banned the media from the voir dire in which jury members were selected, and he would soon punch even more holes into the case. Just after the jury selection, Ray apparently suffered a heart attack and was rushed to a hospital in Las Cruces. He did have a history of heart trouble, his attorney Jeff Rain said, but the prosecutor believed he could also be trying to delay proceedings. If so, he succeeded, as the judge postponed for another week. That led to more legal delays, and a number of expert witnesses from the FBI were excluded. Then, unexpectedly, Judge Mertz decided to start a different trial, this one for the charge of the kidnapping and torture in 1996 of the woman from Colorado. Although it was the case with the weakest evidence, Mertz scheduled the trial for the end of May. Ray was pleased with the delays, as if he were the one manipulating the system. It seemed to make him feel powerful, especially when Mertz excluded Ray's printed sheet of procedures for handling captives and all devices found in the trailer, as no one could prove they'd been there in 1996. While the prosecution had the victim's testimony about what had been done, as well as the videotape, that did not mean that the items she had seen were the same ones acquired during the 1999 search. On May 7, Angelica M., the second victim to accuse Ray, died from pneumonia at age 25, she'd become a drug addict, apparently unable to get past her horrendous experience. Without her testimony, that trial was potentially off the books. A few days later, Cindy Hendy, now age 40, formally received her sentence. Cynthia V. was present in court, and she rose to tell the woman who had helped to terrorize her, "Wrought in hell. Hendy was sent to the Women's correctional center in Grants, New Mexico. On May 23 jury selection for Ray's first trial finally got underway. In this case, he faced 12 counts of non-consensual sex charges, kidnapping, and conspiracy. The victim, whose name was kept from the papers, took the stand to testify about what Ray had done to her. She had been 22 at the time. She claimed that Ray had tied her up and kept her naked the entire time she was at his trailer. However, her memory was murky and she wasn't able to convey very well that she'd clearly been held against her will. She'd probably been drugged, but that could not be proven. Although the videotape was played for the jury, and the victim insisted she would never have agreed to this kind of treatment, she was not a very good witness on her own behalf. On July 14, the papers reported that Judge Mertz had declared a mistrial. Although the jurors had deliberated for more than eight hours, they claimed they could not come to an agreement about the 12 charges. Two of them could not find Ray guilty of criminal assault. The jurors who had voted to acquit, both in their 20s, had decided that the victim had not persuaded them that Ray had kept her there against her will. I was not positive he was torturing her, one told a reporter for the New York Daily News. There are a lot of people who enjoy rough sex. When the accuser heard this news, she broke down in tears, unsure why the jury had not believed her. What would it take to convince people that she had not sought out this treatment nor wanted it? She failed to understand. Ray showed no visible reaction, but Rain thought it was a sign that the jury had paid attention to the evidence or lack of it. Ray would be tried again, which meant the victim would once more have to relive the ordeal. District Attorney Ron Lopez gave a statement about his disappointment, but he may not have been surprised. From the start, He knew that this had been their weakest case and that the victim herself would be on trial. Young girls who were out drinking were generally viewed with disapproval. Nevertheless, Lopez and his team declared their intent to retry Ray at a later date. It's not over yet, he said. The state of New Mexico was not letting this defendant off the hook. Jury selection began in November 2000 for the retrial, with Jim Yance as the prosecutor. But just a few days into it, Judge Mertz died. That delayed the proceedings, as did the disqualification of two more judges. Finally, on April 9, 2001, the trial commenced, with Los Lunas' attorney, Kevin Swansea, just appointed a judge on the judge's bench. The Court of Appeals had upheld Mertz's ruling about the items found inadmissible, so Yance once again had an uphill climb. But he was more prepared to emphasize the nature of this victim's ordeal. The same people testified, including the victim. She testified about her abduction from a bar shortly after her marriage had fallen apart. She described being led on a leash like a dog, from the large trailer to a smaller one. Her feet were placed in stirrups, and she was strapped into place, whereupon Ray began to insert dildos of different sizes into her. She wanted to leave, she said, and she heard Ray lock and unlock the door many times. She was given nothing to eat or drink. Ray's new attorney, Lee McMillan, asked her why it had taken three years for her to come forward with the story. He also hammered her with differences in her testimony from the previous trial. She could only explain that her memory was hazy. He suggested it was all a fantasy that she'd made up. A psychotherapist, David Spencer, testified, just as he had at the first trial. He had been treating the victim, and her sleep disorders were consistent with post-traumatic stress disorder. Ray's audiotape and the videotape he'd made of what he'd done to this victim were played in court. The victim cried as she watched, but the jury members showed no reaction. It seemed possible that they might be inclined, like the first jury, to acquit. The defense called no witnesses because an expert on sadomasochistic psychology was disallowed. This person supposedly would have addressed the nature of consensual sexual fantasy play that involved the rituals that Ray had used. Ray said that he'd wanted to testify on his own behalf, but his attorney had advised against it. He vowed that if he was convicted, he would fight it all the way to the Supreme Court. If you're innocent, you're innocent, he said. I am innocent. The jury convicted him, nevertheless, on all 12 charges for that case, so he gave an interview to an Albuquerque television station, KOB TV, to offer his side. I got pleasure out of a woman getting pleasure, he said. I did what they wanted me to do. To explain the sadistic tapes he'd created, he said, "It was a source of entertainment for me to create those tapes. That’s why there was a disclaimer at the beginning of the tape stating that it was for adult entertainment only. With one conviction behind him, Ray now faced the possibility of worse yet to come that he might spend the rest of his life in jail. In June, Ray's second trial began. Again, he started up with claims of innocence, but within a week. reached an agreement in a plea deal. He said he was willing to plead guilty to the charges in exchange for cutting a deal for his daughter. She would receive five years of probation. To his mind, her freedom was the greatest gift he could give her. In this deal, Ray received more than 223 years in prison. I can only be sorry for what I did, he said enigmatically. Macmillan said there may have been another reason that Ray accepted the plea deal. Every soul longs for redemption. The guy has the desire to do something good. Ray even made a statement to the effect that the time in his cell would allow him an opportunity to reflect and get right with God. Glenda Ray pleaded no contest to a kidnapping charge and received a sentence of nine years for second-degree kidnapping. Six years were suspended, and she was to serve five on probation. But soon Ray appealed his sentence. He said that his plea had not been voluntary and that his exhausted mind was clouded by his ill health, the medications, and the pressure applied by his legal counsel. A three judge panel rejected the appeal, stating that Ray had been on a normal dose of medication at the time he made the deal, and he had not complained about undue pressure from his attorney. He also had no expert to testify that the medication had confused him. Thus, the deal remained in place, but he wouldn't be serving much of the sentence. On May 28, 2002, just as he was about to be transferred to the general prison population at the Lee County Correctional Facility, David Ray Parker suffered a genuine heart attack and died. He was 62. In November that year, the state police officially opened the toy box to the public in the hope that renewed media attention might help to identify other victims and suspects. Inside was a poster that said, Satan's Den, and a sign that stated, Bondage Room. The obstetrical table was still there, complete with clamps, leg stretchers, electrical wires, straps, and chains. Ray had devised two sharp hooks, wrote one reporter, that were apparently designed to prevent his victims from getting up or resisting electric shocks. Inside a steel cabinet were numerous surgical instruments, and near it was the coffin-shaped box used to terrorize and contain victims. Ray's meticulous log was also available, showing how he kept records of what he did to each person. To ensure that no one escaped, he had rigged an elaborate alarm system and had written reminders to secure all collars and straps before leaving. With Ray dead, the investigation fizzled out. No bodies were ever found, no possible victims were identified, and no suspicious deaths loosely associated with Ray were solved. Nevertheless, many sources peg him as a serial killer, a smart one. According to Jim Fielder in Slow Death, Both surviving victims went on to form relationships and start families.